little handout in your bulletin. Uh, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday sadly started as a proclamation of a president of the United States and not because churches swelled up to say we support life. But I'm glad that President Ronald Reagan back in 1984 did just that, to mourn the, the anniversary of Roe versus Wade and the subsequent killing of millions of children. He declared that we believe that life is special. And he wouldn't have said it quite as well as, as a, a Bible exposition would, but we echo today that we believe that human life is special. Uh, this morning, my Sunday school class started in Genesis chapter 1. And as you look at creation and how God spoke and created all things, but what did he do when he came to man? He spent more time fashioning Man. That's why Genesis 2 is all about God fashioning man and breathing into him the, the breath of life and then very carefully from Adam forming Eve to be his companion. And from those first two individuals are all of us because God created man in his image to be special. And so we, as believers in Jesus Christ, not only believe life is special in the womb, but life in every stage is special. I had the opportunity yesterday of being with my parents for their 50th wedding anniversary and to see friends from the past come and and visit, and some of them whose marriages didn't last to 50 because they lost a spouse along the way. Uh, and, and others that, uh, because they'd moved on, had not been able to come. But, uh, but it was, on the one hand, a, a delight to see all the people come out and support my parents, but to realize that uh, my parents may not be around for their 60th. Uh, you, you, if you know me, you know my mom's had health problems. She's had some strokes and stuff. And it's quite possible that the next time that I see some of these people that I saw yesterday will be at a funeral. But we support life at all stages, whether we're talking about the very young or the very old who are unable to take care of themselves or just don't know what's going on anymore. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, understand that God made human life to be very, very special, and we want to protect that as much as we can. Would you pray along with me? Father, as a nation, as a culture, Um, We have defied your understanding of what human life is to the point of commoditizing it, to the point of, of taking life so for granted that we would kill just for our own convenience, that we would take our elderly and, and hide them away rather than caring for them ourselves. Father, forgive us. As a nation, we don't deserve to exist for all the ways that we have killed, for all the ways that we have defied you. But you have been so gracious, even in recent years, in making it more difficult for abortions to take place. They still take place, but it's less, and it's a step in the right direction. Lord, I pray that you would continue to guide and direct our nation. There are, there are many places where, uh, there, with many people, even in our own town, where the, the right to murder an unborn child is the highest right that they could possibly uh, think of. And, and Lord, we know that that is 
that is not of you, that is not a godly desire, that is of the devil. Father, we thank you that despite the wickedness in this land, you have continued to bless. Lord, thank you that your word is true, that no matter what we may have done, whether we've been uh, responsible in neglecting the aging or neglecting the infirm or even killing our own child, that you forgive, that your grace transcends all of our need. So, Father, we ask that you would give us a renewed passion to, to protect life, not only in this age, but in the age to come, that we would recognize that, that this, uh, this mortal life is the opportunity for people to believe and that we would, uh, we would love people so much, that we would love life so much, that we would share with others the truth of the gospel, that regardless of what has happened in their past, whatever they have done uh, against your nature and against your character, that when they put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ, you forgive. And not only do you make the, the slate clean, you actually provide grace upon grace and provide a, a, an eternity of life free from sin, free from pain, free from the, the agonies of aging, you provide an eternal life with our Savior as our King. Lord, help us to have our hearts and minds so fixed on you that, that we would think in the ways that you think, that we would love the things that you love and that we would hate the things that you hate that we would love people even when they hate us that we would do what's right and what's best for others that we would share with them how they too can have an assurance of eternal life found in Jesus Christ Lord I thank you for this church this, uh, this assembly that you have put together that, that loves you, that wants to be true to your word. Lord, help us to be true to your word. Lord, I thank you for the ways that you uh, use the members of this body to encourage one another, to help each other out uh, in, in physical ways, whether it's shoveling snow or helping out around the house, but also in spiritual ways in helping people to see how they need to grow and, and, and helping them take those steps to be what you've called us to be. Lord, I ask that you would continue to use this church to be a beacon of light, a beacon of hope, a beacon of grace in this community that we would truly live up to our name, showing grace to those who don't deserve it because you've shown grace to us and we don't deserve it. So Lord, as we continue to worship you this morning, I pray that you would uh, help us to, to hear from your word, to recognize how it applies to us. So Lord, I ask that you'd help me to speak it well. I pray that you would help us to not only hear and listen, but to do to make changes in our lives that would, uh, that would help us to prioritize you more in every moment of our days. So Lord, thank you for the way that you have chosen to, 
to treasure human life. You treasured us so much that, that you spared no expense for our salvation. You sent Jesus to become our sin, to die the death that we deserved so that we might have life. Lord, help us to live that life in a way that's pleasing to you, that honors you above all things, that prioritizes you. Lord, we ask that in all that we say and do in this day, throughout this week, that we would be pleasing and glorifying to you. We thank you for the ways that you will answer our prayers, the ways that you will bless us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. 
as we continue our series today. We look at the Passover as it's commanded, as it's prophesied to the people of Israel. These first chapters, the first half of the book of Exodus is all about God doing the work to redeem his people, to take them out of their situation. They are enslaved. They are powerless against the Pharaoh. And God does everything that needs to be done for him to actually send them out, as we'll see in coming chapters. For so many generations, the people of God suffered. Generation to generation of people being taught what they knew from their grandparents, from their parents, the promise of God that they would have this land that was promised to Abraham. Imagine living your whole life, hearing these promises, believing them, telling them to the next generation, but to never experience the promise in your own lifetimes. That's exactly what happened to the people of Israel. I guess we really don't have to imagine do we? We too, as believers in Jesus Christ, are God's people to whom He has made great and marvelous promises about our future. And we too may not see these promises fulfilled until after we pass from this life. So we can kind of relate to what the Israelites were living under, having those promises and not seeing them be Fulfilled, But then came Moses. But even then, it wasn't until Moses was 80 years old that he comes to uh, be the one who is leading Israel and going up to Pharaoh, telling him, let my people go. God always acts at exactly the right moment. He is never a moment early, and he is never a moment late. When God moves, there is no stopping it, and praise the Lord for that. In the the perspective of the Israelites enslaved in Egypt, it seemed like God was never going to fulfill his promises, that they were going to be stuck in Egypt forever. But sure enough, at the exact right moment, God began to move. God has been moving in our Exodus study. He has demonstrated his superiority over Pharaoh and all of the Egypt's gods. In today's passage, God promises the Passover. He promises that, uh, that there's coming one more plague in which all of the firstborn will die. The firstborn of every household, someone in that house will die. All the firstborn of animals, unless unless they trust God and do what God commands in preparing the lamb and having the blood on the doorway. God promises the Passover. In doing so, God provides an unmistakable picture of our own salvation. So I hope you'll see that. We'll catch that as we go through. Our big idea this morning is God wants our actions to demonstrate our faith. And we'll see that as we go through. God wants our actions to demonstrate our faith. So please follow along with me as I read our text. 
We're in Exodus chapter 12. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, this real event that happened in the nation of Israel that pictured for them the coming Messiah, that pictures for us who we know to be Jesus. Thank you for the promise of Scripture that when Jesus' blood is applied to our lives, that's what you see. You pass over us. Lord, I pray that you would guide our thoughts, guide my words, that you would help us to learn of you, to live for you as a result of what you do in and through us in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. There's three main aspects of the Passover we're going to look at this morning. We've got the lamb, the blood, and the meal. So let's get to the lamb in verse 1. The centerpiece of the meal is this unblemished lamb. And we're going to skip ahead to verse 5 for a moment. Uh, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You can take it from the sheep or the goats and keep it until the 14th day of this month. So on the 10th day, you bring the lamb into the household. The people were to take a yearling, either from the sheep or the goats, one that had no blemish, so no visual, <coughs> no visual defect, probably no cough, um, no diseases of any kind, no broken legs. It had to be an unblemished lamb. The lamb is going to be in the place of the firstborn who are of that household. 
So when God comes through the land, as we talked about last time, there's going to be death in each and every household. It will be the, the firstborn son. I look around and I know some of you are firstborns. I too am a firstborn. Imagine being the firstborn in that household and interacting with that lamb for those few days. Knowing that if they don't go through and slaughter this lamb and put the blood of this lamb on the doorway, that their life would be taken that very night. It becomes really personal, doesn't it? The symbolism of the lamb is very rich. Some of it's very obvious, some of it is less so. We'll start with the obvious. The lamb had to be perfect in every way. Sacrifices to God always had to be free of blemish and defect. As we uh, go later into the giving of the law and, and God spells out how sacrifices are to be made, uh, they, they couldn't take uh, the defective lamb, the one that wouldn't make much at markets, the one that, that would not sell well. No, they couldn't take that one and offer it as, as a gift to God. It had to be the best. Sacrifices to God always had to be free from blemish. Now, the Bible does not record the specific details of the earliest sacrifices made, uh, but the implication is that the same requirements uh, were made then that are finally spelled out into the law later. Here's what I mean. The very first sacrifice for sin that we have recorded in Scripture is Genesis 3. If you remember, Genesis 3 is where perfection falls apart. The world has been made and everything in it and God has created Adam and Eve and placed them in the perfect environment and Eve is tempted by the serpent to eat of that one tree that they were told not to. And as a result, they have sinned. They hide from the Lord and when, Adam, or when God calls out to Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam responds, I was hiding because I knew I was naked and God says, who told you? How did you know? And what's he do? He throws Eve under the bus. But the reality is, is he knew because he had sinned. Adam sinned. And because Adam sinned, God created clothing for them. And he did not use rayon or cotton or some form of plant life that could be fashioned. No. Scripture records that he killed an animal to make skins of clothing for them. Sin, the very first sin, was covered then by the death of an animal. Fast forward to Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel are bringing offerings to God, and we aren't told uh, what the specifics are that were, that were given to them until after the fact, but Abel brought an animal to sacrifice, and Cain brought the offering of the land, the plants and, and fruits that, that he had grown, and God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's because even back then, people knew what God required for a sacrifice. The Passover lamb, however becomes the first written command of sacrifice for God's people. They knew about sacrifices long before here, okay? But this is the first time it's being written for them, being commanded. The lamb had to be perfect. And that lamb not only was perfect, it would have been precious because it had to be the substitute for that firstborn of the family. 
From the New Testament point of view, we recognize the symbolism of the perfect Passover lamb points to the perfection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the Passover lamb had to be physically perfect, no blemishes, uh, no, no visible or known defects. Jesus' body didn't have to be physically perfect. It had to be sinlessly perfect. The symbolism of the perfect lamb uh, pointed not to uh, the beauty of Jesus as though he had no blemishes on his face. Artwork depicts it that way. It was probably not true. In fact, what does the scripture say? The scripture says that he was not going to be beautiful, that, that he was average and unnoticed, unknown otherwise. No, the sinless lamb points to, or, or the, the, the unblemished lamb of the sacrifice of the Passover points to the sinless perfection of Jesus, our Passover lamb. And there's something more going on in these verses as well. The chosen lamb was brought in the house on the 10th day and then sacrificed on the 14th day. Imagine a family with children of various ages and you introduce a cute, beautiful, woolly little friend. It doesn't take my children very long to cling to something as a pet. Fortunately, we always leave that house and the pet doesn't come home with us. They try. But the children would get very attached to this lamb very quickly. And then the the dad has to take the lamb and slit its throat, collect the blood, and paint it on the doorway. Imagine being that firstborn son, realizing that if it were not for the death of this lamb that I would surely die. That's all of the what of what's happening. We were given the when, or the when, sorry, in verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. So the entire Hebrew calendar is going to focus on the Passover. And the Passover is when? It's in the spring or early spring. Uh, it can be snowy for Easter, but not always. Depends on the year. Uh, the entire Hebrew, Hebrew calendar is going to focus on starting with the Passover. And it seems a little bit foreign to us to start the calendar year, to think of the calendar year starting in the spring. Um, but the reality of our own idea of New Year is actually pretty arbitrary, isn't it? It's one and a half weeks after the winter solstice. Why not the day of the winter solstice? Wouldn't that make more sense? But the truth is, uh, there are more than two dozen dates on the calendar that are recognized as the start of a new year by various cultures. So they're all arbitrary to 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 a degree anyway. And so God has defined for his people when their calendar would begin. And two weeks into that calendar, into that month, is going to be the Passover. It's the beginning of the year for them as a people, and it, re- it commemorates for them when they really began in earnest to be a nation. This is when God is actually taking them out of the, the, from the Egyptians, and they are now in mass going to be recognized as their own nation. It's the beginning of the year, but it's also the beginning of them as a nation. Who is defined for us in verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel. That word congregation is first used right here in Scripture. It means assembly. Uh, It's used to refer to God's people to the exclusion of those who do not belong. Now we know from latter passages that we've, we've 
glanced at at least before that there are a whole bunch of, of Egyptians that do go along with Israel uh, in the Exodus. So any of the Egyptians who have already recognized the superiority of Jehovah, the God of Israel, over their own gods and have rejected their gods and turned to Jehovah would have been included in this congregation and subsequently would have been able to participate in the Passover, thus preserving their own firstborn. And how do they do it? Verses 3 and 4 give us the, the what, the, the community meal. Tell all the congregation of Israel on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if a household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor, and so on. You can read that. No one was to participate alone. We talked about the lamb we're going to skip the blood for a moment and go to the meal in verse 8. So we're skipping verse 7 on purpose. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. Look at the meat preparation. It's to be roasted, not raw, not boiled, not microwaved. Of course, they didn't do that. Uh, but they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. This meal screams quick. Roasting, and in fact, it, it said to not... Uh, to not fully dress the animal. They were to keep the head on. That's gross to us. But keep the head on. Uh, don't do a full cleaning of the interior. Just slaughter it, collect the blood, and roast it. This is their version of a quick meal. Unleavened bread. Again, much more quick, much more easy, faster preparation than, than regular bread would be. And bitter herbs. Uh, there's a variety of herbs, a variety of vegetables that fall under that. But again, very, very easy to prepare for a meal. The atmosphere of this meal, the dress code, the accessories, the intent of this meal is very specific. Um, first of all, this meal is to be sanctified, set apart. They were not to keep any leftovers, and that's what I mean by set apart. They were to eat it and destroy the leftovers. Verse 10, let none of it remain. Anything that remains, burn it. Why? Because it was a sanctified meal. It was to not be eaten. Because what they know is as this is their last meal in Egypt. They're going to be gone. Anything that's left over, they didn't want to be taken by anyone else. So God told them, destroy the leftovers. There's an urgency of this meal in verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The atmosphere of this meal is very different from what we think of as a holiday meal. Take Thanksgiving, for instance. A Thanksgiving meal takes all day. The preparation, the eating of it, the grazing of the food later as it kind of gets left out and people just keep going back to the table and eating a little bit more. The leftovers later... We take our time. We make a lot of variety of foods. And some of these foods take a long time to make. In fact, there are some foods that we only have at these, uh, these big holiday meals because they're so finicky and so difficult to make. We have fe a feast that takes a long time. And honestly, the way we do feasts in our culture is pretty lame compared to what they would do in the ancient Israel culture. In the Middle East, feasts were weeks long, not just a, a single meal that you gouge yourself and they, they porked themselves all week. Um, anyway, 
Not so for the Passover. The Passover was to be a simple meal. It was to be eaten while being prepared to leave at a moment's notice. Shoes, check. Belt, got my coat on, I'm ready to go. Staff in hand, can't leave that behind, got to have it right there. The end of verse 11 says, and, and you shall eat it in haste. That word haste literally means anxious haste. If you ever find yourself running late, but you have to eat, that's the sense that you have here. Uh, As a college student, I did that more often than I should have. I didn't have quite the time to actually sit and digest, but uh, grab and go, uh, perhaps you know the feeling. At any moment, the time would be right, and they would have to leave. So the fire was burning, the fire that they roasted their meat on, and their shoes are on, the staff is ready. As soon as the meal's done, throw the leftovers in the fire. It's going to be time to go. We've looked at the lamb. We've looked at the meal. Let's talk about the blood. Verse 7. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. That was the application. Where was it to go? It had to be on what we would call the, the door frame of the door. Then we see the sign of the blood in verses 12 and 13. For I will pass. Remember we talked about last time that um, God set, told to Pharaoh, I, I myself will go through the land. We see that repeated here. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The importance of the blood of the Lamb, we can't overstate it. If there's no blood on the doorpost, there's death in the house. It's as simple as that. Without the blood of the Lamb, there would be death. Didn't matter who was in the house. Their history didn't matter. Their status or wealth did not matter. All that mattered was the blood. How does the blood get there? Well, the obvious answer is people painted it there. But back up a step before. How'd the blood get there? It's because they heard the word from God, take this lamb, bring it into your house, and they obeyed, right? They had to believe that God meant what he said. They had to trust him and go through this process. Their faith prompted their actions. As bizarre as these actions seemed, and this is bizarre, Okay. Never before had God given a, a widespread command like this for his people to make a sacrifice, much less take the blood and do something weird with it, or, or even to, to prepare the, the meat in, in a specific fashion, not keeping leftovers. This is all very specific. It's all very bizarre. But their faith prompted their actions. Faith in God is not a blind following. 
It is a reasonable and rational response to the information and evidence that we have available. Let me say that again. Faith in God is not a blind following. It is reasonable. It is rational. It's sensible in light of the information and the evidence that we have about God. In the case of Israel, they had information. They had instruction from God. Take the unblemished lamb into the house. At the right time, slaughter the lamb. Apply the blood. Cook and eat. The previous nine plagues all served as evidence. They had the information. They had the instruction from God as to what to do. But they also had evidence. The nine plagues before clearly demonstrated the power of God over the Egyptian gods. Remember, in many of the plagues, not all of them, but in many of the plagues, the preference of God for Israel was shown as well because uh, the plague would impact Egypt, but not Israel. So the storms came through and destroyed all the crops of the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. The, the plague of darkness that was so thick they could feel it, that it, it caused them to not even leave their houses, was in Egypt, and yet the Israelites could walk around and see just fine. They had evidence. So their information, coupled with their evidence, was enough for them to believe and obey. God wants our actions to demonstrate our faith as well. We have information. We have God's word that informs us what it takes to be a believer in Jesus Christ. It's not go out and try and be good. It's go out and recognize that we aren't good. Recognize that we are sinners, that we are corrupted through and through, and it's by nature. God's word informs us that the only way to have that undone is to put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, in his perfect sacrifice on the cross. By the way, that's bizarre. That doesn't make sense. Because logically, we should go out and do good things to undo the bad things. But that's man's logic. It's the logic of the world. And it's a logic that condemns. The word of God gives us instruction The Word of God gives us evidence, too. Throughout history, men and women have gone to their death proclaiming what they know to be true about Jesus. The, the Roman government, the Jewish people, tried really hard to destroy the church at the very beginning. All the apostles, except for John, were executed for their faith. And the reason they didn't recant is because they knew that Jesus was alive and the Holy Spirit gave them the boldness to to be able to do that to their death. We have the evidence of the empty tomb. Jesus Christ himself did not write books, did not leave a paper trail as it were. But so many people, both Bible writers but also secular historians, wrote about this man named Jesus We have evidence. We know that he did indeed die, and we know that his tomb is empty by supernatural means. We have the information and we have the evidence. 
and many in here today, you do believe. I praise God for you. If you're sitting here today and you don't yet believe, first of all, ask God to help you believe. That's a prayer he wants to answer. Ask him to forgive you over your, of your sins. That's a prayer he wants to answer. Put your trust in what Jesus has done, our Passover lamb. When God sees the blood of Jesus applied to our hearts, he accepts us as his own adopted child. We are his. God wants our actions to demonstrate our faith. Do you believe in God? Show it. Do you believe that God the Father sent God the Son to be our atoning sacrifice for sin? If yes, then how has your faith changed your actions? How has your faith changed your priorities? How much time in a week do you spend specifically for God's purposes? You're here today. That took a time commitment. How much money do you spend specifically on God's purposes? How does your faith impact your politics? It's an election year, oh boy. How does your faith impact your outlook? By the way, grumbling is not a fruit of the Spirit. Neither is worry. I know there are circumstances, there are reasons that we grumble, there are reasons that we worry. That's kind of a normal part of life. The question is, are we okay to stay there? Does our faith impact our outlook? At the Passover, back, back with the Israelites in Egypt, at the Passover, the faith of the people ultimately caused them to pick up their entire lives and go to a place they didn't know where they were going, to go with no supplies... told you we went to visit my parents for their 50th anniversary. Just before going, Amanda took some of the kids to the grocery store to get some snack supplies so we could survive the two-and-a-half-hour road trip. (laughs) They brought their kneading bowls. They didn't have supply. They picked up their entire lives in faith to follow God. And they did so by following a cloud, a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. Now that's supernatural, but, but think of, from a world's perspective, the absurdity. Trusting God is going to look foolish to the world. But to us, it's life. To the Hebrew people, the blood on the doorway meant no death in the house that night. It looked foolish to the Egyptians who wouldn't do it. But it meant life. Jesus is our Passover lamb. His crucifixion was on the exact day of the Passover that year. It is his blood that must be applied to each of our lives individually. And in that sense... Exodus 12, 13 applies to us, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Jesus' blood is what makes the difference between you spending eternity with him in, in perfection. No more pain, 
No more super cold, snowy days. Jesus' blood makes the difference between spending eternity with him in perfection versus spending eternity without him in unending torment. So my challenge for you, believer in Christ today, how is your faith being shown in your actions, in your attitudes, in your words? Take some time. Analyze yourself. Keep analyzing yourself so that next, next time you have an outburst, realize, Lord, I know that was wrong. Help me put that behind me and not do that again. Whatever it is, analyze yourself. How are my actions demonstrating that I have faith? Let's pray. Lord, your desire is that we be just like Jesus. And you know our frame. You know that, that we were made of the dust of the ground. You know that we are descendants of Adam, that, that first man, that first sinner. And because of that, we sin. Because of that, all of nature is cursed and, and under the curse of sin. And because of that, until this body is transformed into our new eternal body, we are going to struggle with sin. Lord, overshadow our whole beings with, uh, with the truth of who you are and what you desire for us. Help us to recognize the ways that we fail you and to turn from them. Thank you that your word promises that when we ask for forgiveness of sin, you give it. You are gracious in forgiving us because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to grow, to grow closer to you. Lord, help our faith be so real that it defines who we are, that it directs our actions, that it it puts a, a harness on our words. That it defines our priorities. How we spend our time. How we spend our money. How we pursue relationships. Whatever it is. Lord, help us to be prioritized by our faith in you. Lord, thank you that you've not called us to do this on our own, that you've given us the church to be that assembly, that congregation to help one another, that you have not left us uninformed, you've given us your word, that you've given us your spirit that dwells in us. Lord, help us to use what you've given us so that we might grow into the person you've called us to be. Lord, help us to remain faithful to you until we see our Savior face to face and we no longer have that curse of sin. Help us to be faithful until we see him face to face. Thank you that you are always faithful and gracious to us. In Jesus' name.